everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Anatomically, humans are the same as they were hundreds of thousands of years ago. Recent advances then are not due to biological changes in our species, but rather to cultural changes. The introduction of schooling is one of these cultural changes that played a role in these advances. For the first time with the introduction of schooling, humans were able to learn systematically and facilitate transmission of knowledge to future generations of learners. A brief history of schooling is what we're talking about today. All credit to the sources of this for this episode, uh, Thomas 2021 Education, a very short introduction, and NACA Education from Britannica 2021. Detailed knowledge about the way schools first operated really comes from classical Greece in the 4th century BC. This was really the first time when people's thoughts about systematic education were recorded and education became organized on definitive lines. Now, we must note that educational practices predated classical Greece. They were around in... uh, in ancient Egypt, in ancient Chinese civilizations, but actual systematic schooling where we have good knowledge of how it was conducted and planned out, that was happening in the 4th century BC. And and it was coming from two people. It was coming from the uh, joint and also rival efforts of two great educators, The philosopher Plato, who opened his school called the Academy, probably around 387 BC, and the orator Isocrates, who founded his school around 390 BC. Plato's literary dialogues provide a comprehensive picture of what his approach was to education at this time. Plato's school was built on developing verbal reasoning skills. This pursuit, according to Plato, enabled misconceptions and confusions to be stripped away and the nature of underlying truth to be established. Plato maintained that only those who survived his very rigorous 15-year program were fit for the highest offices and capable of maintaining and dispensing justice. In Plato's world, uh, Good government came from an educated society in which kings are philosophers and philosophers are kings. Kings need this wisdom and you can't be a king, according to Plato, unless you have have this wisdom and you've gone through this uh, rigorous training and you can think about um, all sorts of things and play with all sorts of ideas and have strong verbal reasoning and, and these types of skills that could only be developed through Plato's school and and government officials have to come out of these schools according to Plato. Now, his rival Isocrates was more practical with his schooling. He aimed at working out very common sense solutions to life's problems. Um, His program was more literary than anything as well. His school included an extensive study of rhetoric consisting of five or six years of theory, analysis of the great classics, imitation of the classics, and then practical exercises as well. Very practical, real-world things from Isocrates. And from these initial schools, the Greeks eventually developed elementary schools for the teaching of reading and arithmetic. They also had colleges with end-of-term examinations in geometry, uh, grammar, music, and rhetoric. That probably (laughs) reminds you of what school is like now. 
Now, this is where it, it's different from the way school is now. The word school comes from the Greek word skol, meaning leisure. This gives you an idea of how much education has changed since then. Now school is quite the opposite of leisure, quite literally, because the one of the antonyms for leisure is work. And school certainly does feel like work for many students. So things have totally flipped uh, the way school is the way school is, it seems the initial assumption was that leisure was synonymous with learning and contemplation. And this is what Plato thought. And Plato in, in the Republic, he says this, he says, indispensable preparation for dialects must be presented to them while still young, not in the form of compulsory instruction. Why so? Because a free soul ought not to pursue any study slavishly. For while bodily labors performed under constraint do not harm the body, nothing that is learned under compulsion stays with the mind. Do not then keep children to their studies by compulsion, but by play. Keep it leisurely, keep it, keep it free, keep, it, keep everything open, and, and don't make it compulsory. This is what the initial foundation of schooling was from Plato, far from this compulsory instruction that makes students feel like it's work. How, oh, how schools have changed since Plato's initial uh, musings on the topic. A far more didactic, regimented system soon be, began to develop in the Greek curriculum with brutality and its disciplinary methods. So soon after Plato had created these more leisurely ways of learning, for some reason the system already started to create a more regimented, didactic system that still kind of, uh, you, you feel its echo, you hear its echoes today. This kind of... Uh, instruction, this more serious instruction and compulsory instruction spread to Rome. The Romans maintained many of the Greek traditions in schooling, including a predilection for thrashing, actually. Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century AD notes, I was put to school to get learning of which I knew not what use there was, and yet, if slow to learn, I was flogged or whipped. So he didn't even really know the use of why he was going through this this serious this schooling process. He didn't know what he was learning in there, but if he didn't learn it properly, he was whipped. And this is the way schooling was conducted in Rome. Schools at this time were almost defined by uh, the presence of, almost completely defined by the presence of these whippings. School started at dawn and shouting at and flogging of the boys began immediately. This practice still has not fully disappeared from the world. Roman schooling broadly followed the, the model the Greeks had established in other ways as well. There were small schools for boys who were taught grammar and rhetoric. The emphasis on rhetoric was because the aim of the Roman education was to fit a boy for public life as an advocate or a statesman. And this was done uh, by the Romans by training the boys in public speaking. So this is kind of similar to... Socrates uh, and his philosophy of schooling, these, these very practical skills that you learn in school. And the Romans uh, didn't just take these, uh, these authoritarian uh, tactics from, from what was happening in Greece. They also took some of the, the good aspects of it and, and giving these boys practical skills. 
Now, beyond Rome, it spread, and now we, you can take it to medieval times when progress in the practice of schooling, uh, it, it did fall with the fall of Rome in a way. And we, you go through these, these times when there aren't really, there are philosophers aren't uh, arising with new ideas on, on schooling until in the 8th century AD, Charlemagne, the king of the Franks, so in modern-day Belgium, he ordered... Let every monastery and every abbey have its school in which boys may be taught the psalms, the system of musical notation, singing, arithmetic, and grammar. Al Alcuin of York, one of Charlemagne's advisors, wrote manuals on grammar, rhetoric, and dialects. It was Alcuin who developed the curriculum into uh, trivium, which was grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and quadrivium, arithmetic, astronomy, geometry and music so they again started to bring back these these uh systemic practices for education and they created this curriculum and together these guys uh these were the these guys created the the seven subjects that uh built the uh, classical studies these became the the curriculum of of the first universities in Bologna, Paris, and Oxford in the 11th and 12th centuries. So this is where we are now. These changes to the curriculum, though, didn't just come from from these two, from Charlemagne and and his advisors. They also came from a new respect for rationality. In the 13th century, the ideas of Aristotle, who coincidentally is Plato's student, started to uh, receive, uh, be received a little more into the thinking of the church through figures such as Thomas Aquinas and William of Ockham. This is where Ockham's razor comes from. Uh, rationality began to challenge doctrine and dogma. More thought began uh, to be given to the knowledge of nature, inquiry, and teaching. This might sound a lot like the Enlightenment, if, if you listen to those episodes, and, and it really is a little bit, this focus on rationality, they're employing uh, a lot of uh, Aristotle's ideas. And this is kind of how the ideas, ideas and these types of movements, they are, in a sense, repeated throughout history. Look how Plato is only re-entering the story uh, over 1,500 years later, Plato indirectly through his student Aristotle. Now he's coming back into the story in the 13th century out of nowhere. And a few centuries after these ideas of bringing back Aristotle's ideas of rationality, then you, the Enlightenment emerges. And this, the Enlightenment, laid the groundwork for the rational society we know today. So it's just interesting how these ideas build upon one another and... Uh, history kind of repeats itself and that's just how it goes in a way it, it, they're thinking about the this rationality in aristotle's time then they bring it back in the 13th century and then they bring it back again in the enlightenment and now we have it here again in, in the 21st century so history it builds on itself but also it also kind of repeats itself in a sense also in the 13th century, blueprints for forms of teaching started to appear in the cathedral and monastery schools and in the universities. So there was Lectio, the reading of a text by a teacher without questions, like a lecture, and Disputatio, the posing uh, of, a, of a subject for dispute and debate. So very uh, 
things we're probably familiar with today. This was happening in the 13th century. Later in the Middle Ages, other kinds of schools also began to emerge. They, they were mainly associated with apprenticeship and the learning of particular trades. It's worth noting that the printing press had not yet been invented at this time, so learning was predominantly undertaken by doing and helped along by spoken rather than written words. In the 16th century, now we're into the Renaissance, schools had more or less crystallized into actually their current form, believe it or not, albeit with a longer school day of often uh, over 10 hours. Classrooms also began to be divided by age as they are now. How did education all of a sudden become so similar uh, to how it is now? Well, this, this is the printing press thing. The invention of the printing press was actually was groundbreaking for the development of thought and education. You could really record uh, what was being taught, what needed to be learned, and it could be spread at, at such a rapid rate and knowledge could, could be facilitated and, in, in this way. Uh, it, it kind of spawned a, something of an information age, nothing like what we're seeing today with digital uh, information, but it, it really was an information age of the time, and it played a huge role in, in, in changing schooling. The, prolif the proliferation of the printing press led to the burgeoning of interest in art, philosophy, literature, and science. That was characteristic of the Renaissance. So the, this is how an invention uh, can, can kind of spawn a whole cultural movement. And now everyone's interested in all these uh, ancient things in art, philosophy, and literature, and science. And people are reading, people are studying, and learning. And you see how the Enlightenment can, can come from something like this. But obviously, school schooling, it, it's never been perfect. It still isn't. And calls for change have have arisen throughout history. And Shakespeare's time of the late 16th century, much learning was quite dull and, and monotonous as, as it is now, and it was more likely to kill any curiosity than nurture it. Shakespeare himself questioned and mocked the school curriculum in some of his plays. You can look at his, his play as you like it. He says, Then the whining schoolboy, with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail, unwillingly to school. Look how that is so parallel with so many young kids going unwillingly to school today, creeping like a snail, just hoping they, uh, just delaying their, <laughs> their walk to school, hoping they never uh, have to enter those doors. And, and critics started to come out in this time. Critique of the school system also came from the Czech teacher Comenius, who lived in the early 17th century, right after Shakespeare. He championed universal education, arguing for the commonality of education, which wouldn't include females. Of course, this was incredibly radical for the time. This proposition was completely unheard of, educating females. And, and, but he, he brought this to the table. The questions being raised by Comenius and other critics of this time, though, of course, didn't really hit the public consciousness so much until a couple hundred years later. This is when Rousseau came out with Emile or, or on education in 1762. This is taken right from, from his, uh, his seminal text. He says, instead of keeping Emile mute up in a stuffy room, take him out into a meadow every day. Let him run about. Let him struggle and fall again and again. The more often, the better. He will learn all the sooner to pick himself up. My pupil will hurt himself more often than yours. 
but he will always be merry. Your pupils may receive fewer injuries, but they are always thwarted, constrained, and sad. So he's introducing this idea of a certain freedom in education. And again, repeating the ideas that had been around since Plato, coming back to this idea of, of leisure that schooling was initially based on. Let, let Emile, uh, the learner, don't, don't coop him up in a room with all these, this stuffy room with people. Take him out, let him play, let him get hands-on experience. Um, he's going to make lots of mistakes, but you can allow those. It's better to allow him to make mistakes than to just be so strict. And uh, he even says your pupils may receive fewer injuries, but your pupils are also always thwarted, constrained, and sad. You box them in and they, they're afraid to make mistakes. And this is not the right way to, to educate children. Rousseau was already thinking about this in 1762. We still haven't fully come around with some of these ideas. I mean, in a sense, we are going against what what Rousseau was kind of saying there with, with uh, I mean look how I mean I know for me I was always scared to make mistakes and frankly you can't really you don't have the option of making mistakes in, in a lot of schooling today it's it doesn't leave a lot of room for creativity I mean it's just uh, it's a it's a right or wrong situation it's it's not there's no maybes there's no gray area it's very black and white and Rousseau kind of said that this will thwart a student it will leave them constrained and sad but um, we, we haven't we haven't fully followed this and, and and this kind of speaks to this point that although Rousseau did have an influence on a handful of European educators at the time his r influence really was not so profound right away and as I kind of mentioned, still isn't fully realized. Though his ideas were fascinating to many, they hardly made a practical mark on the developing institution of school. I mean, part of the reason Rousseau didn't really have control over, Emile was banned in Paris and burned in Geneva. It was too radical for the time. Um, so the ideas, they didn't permeate the system, but they were, they did start to at least permeate the culture. I mean, just the very fact that I'm bringing it up hundreds of years later shows that it's, it's permeated culture and, and, and it didn't permeate, permeate the institution right away. But this is often the case in, in, in innovative thinking. The ideas are absorbed into the minds of people long before they're absorbed into the system. And who knows, it may even be longer into the future before these ideas are fully realized into the system. Um, so things continued on as they had been before with monotonous recitations of lists and facts and the chanting of Latin conjugations. And this continued all the way until the end of the 18th century. And this is where universal public schooling really started. All that we've been talking about so far, it wasn't compulsory for students to go into school. But in the Victorian period, the mid to late 1800s, there was universal public schooling. The Foresters Act in 1870 mandated education for all children up to the age of 10 in Britain. Before this legislation, school attendance had not been compulsory and only about half of the population attended schools. The proportion of kids attending school was even lower in rural areas where children's labor was vital for family income. Why exactly did mandatory schooling become a uh, become a thing with, with the Forster Act in 1870? Well, 
1870 Universal Schooling Law was passed not because the public needed to open their mind or um, because there was a value placed on learning. Universal schooling actually came from a worry about Britain losing its competitive edge to other European countries and also to the United States. Both the USA and Prussia already by that time were providing free compulsory elementary education and the Americans were even providing universal secondary schooling. European schools, uh, more broadly outside of Britain, had started replacing classical subjects with engineering and with science. Britain's European competitors were benefiting from these changes to their curriculum and uh, in commerce and in industry and also on the battlefield. The words of the UK Prime Minister at the time, William Gladstone, talks, uh, speaks, to, speaks to this. He's talking about the success of Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War. He says, The conduct of the campaign has given a marked triumph to the cause of systematic popular education. So this is how the rationale behind compulsory schooling actually arrived. It came from not from a, a, a value of, of learning necessarily. It really came from the expectation that it would actually lead to industrial and even military success. And now here we are with schools based upon an amalgamation of all of these philosophies throughout history. A little bit of Rousseau, a little bit from this Universal Schooling Act, a little bit even still from Plato and Isocrates. Um, and... And this combination of all of these philosophies on schooling is, is with us today, for better or for worse. Thank you guys for tuning into the Insightful Thinkers podcast. If you liked it, as always, just share it with someone who you think would like this episode as well. Um, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week as always, in-depth analysis, diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody. This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.